There are two things that are absolutely true. Grandma loves you, and she would never say no to McDonald's. So treat yourself to a Grandma McFlurry with your order today. It's what Grandma would want. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At participating McDonald's for a limited time. National Outlet Shopping Day is back. Join us June 8th and 9th at Simon Premium Outlets nationwide. Score thousands of can't-miss deals from brands you love all weekend long. They've got up to 65% off every day. And the National Outlet Shopping Day deals are even better. Visit premiumoutlets.com slash NOSD to find a premium outlet near you. That's premiumoutlets.com slash NOSD. She said, get out the chat room and clean mine. The Glad Girl Group coming at you with a throwback jam. That was Glad Force Flex Drawstring Trash Bags featuring Pine Sol Original Scent. And that's better than all good. It's all Glad. Hello and welcome to Reimagining Love. I'm Dr. Alexandra Solomon. Relationships have the power to wound us and the power to heal us. As a clinical psychologist, author, and professor at Northwestern University, I've devoted my life to studying intimate partnerships and family dynamics. On Reimagining Love, I'm here to translate complex clinical topics into tools and takeaways that you can use in your relationships today. If you're ready to develop relational self-awareness and create vibrant and loving relationships with the people who matter most to you, you've come to the right place. I'm so glad that you're here. Hi, Reimagining Love listeners. Black Friday deals are coming your way. I am sure you are inundated with tons of sales and discounts from your favorite retailers, from clothing to home goods to gifts and more. But I want to let you know about a special limited time deal that I'm offering that can help you improve upon something that I think is more important than your style or your home decor. And that is, of course, your love life. From now until next Tuesday, November 28th, I'm offering 20% off both of my e-courses with discount code FRIDAYLOVE. You can apply this code to my Hallmark course, Intimate Relationships 101, which will help you learn how to build the strongest foundation for a thriving intimate relationship, relational self-awareness. This course will help you understand your relationship patterns and what's behind them and give you the tools you need to communicate with clarity and curiosity, whether you are single, dating, or in a long-term relationship. Or you can use the code FRIDAYLOVE toward my course, Can I Trust You Again? Rebuilding After Betrayal or Deceit. This course will help you learn about the dynamics of betrayal, how to discern whether recovery is possible, and what a relational model of healing looks like. To explore these courses and make your selection, visit courses.dralexandrasolomon.com. Again, that's 20% off and the discount code is FRIDAYLOVE. And it's only valid from now until November 28th. So I hope you will take advantage of this rare opportunity. Happy learning and loving. 
Welcome back to another episode of Reimagining Love. I have an impactful conversation to share with you today about the power of community in our healing journeys. My guest is the brilliant and thoughtful Nina B., whose work navigates the intersection of mental health and social justice. Mina B. is a licensed social worker, a mental health educator, and author of Owning Our Struggles, A Path to Healing and Finding Community in a Broken World, a powerful new book designed to give context to our struggles, from our childhoods, to our adult relationships, to the systems of oppression that deeply impact our lives and our communities. A former psychotherapist specializing in anxiety, depression, and trauma, Mina has worked in various mental health industries, including private practice and community mental health. She obtained her graduate degree in social work from New York University. Mina is the host of the Very Well Mind podcast, runs an advice column called Free Therapy for Cosmopolitan Magazine, and is a member of the Mental Health Advisory Committee for Wondermind, a mental fitness company co-founded by Selena Gomez. As an expert in her field, Mina has been featured in various media outlets, including Red Table Talk, Peace of Mind with Taraji, Oprah Daily, and Katie Couric Media. Today, Mina and I speak about connecting self-care to community care and what can happen when we shift our healing from I to we. Mina then beautifully helps me answer a listener's question about navigating a triggering situation and discerning whether the listener's response is founded in the present versus the shadow of past wounds. Mina brings a beautiful sense of warmth and compassion to these heavy conversations around trauma and healing. I think there's so much to explore in this conversation, and I hope that you enjoy it as much as I did. Hi, Mina. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, Alexandra. Of course. Thank you for having me. We were just reminiscing that we've only met once face-to-face, and that was at our mutual friend Vienna Farron's book launch party back in February. So it's nice to see you again. Same. <laughs> and I'm so excited to dig into your incredible new book. Before we started, I was telling you how incredibly impressed I am with what you've created here in your in your debut book, your first, but I'm really quite sure it's not going to be your last. But before <laughs> we do that, I would love to ask you the relational self-awareness question that I ask all of our guest experts. Are you ready for it? Yes. Okay. So Mina, I would love for you to talk a little bit about a growing edge that you're currently working on in one of your important relationships and what it has been teaching you these days? Mm. A loaded question. (laughs) I think it is patience with allowing people to give me what they're equipped to give me. And I'm feeling that in certain friendship dynamics, even in certain family dynamics as well, where um, these are people I love and people I care for, but I do recognize that as I grow, I'm finding that there are needs that they just cannot meet. And it is requiring me to fill my cup in my own ways, but to also just be patient and also to honor the spaces that people are in and not making a judgment about it. But also honoring that 
you are in a space where you can be grieving. And that is where I am. But I'm also just learning to be patient with myself and learning to be patient with others, um, rooted in the belief that I know these are people who love me, but at the end of the day, they just may not be able to give me what I'm looking for. I mean, you're taking us right into, I think, one of the kind of difficulties of this healing work that we don't talk quite enough about, which is that as you embark on your own healing journey, you do it, it holds up your relationships in a new light. And so you're talking about this way in which not everybody is going to embark on a healing journey. And you have people in your life that you love, that you know love you, that aren't doing this work in the way that you have done it, in the way that you do it, in the way that you write about for others, and that your growing edge is how do you practice patience with what people are able to give you? Not what you wish they could give you or what you want, or if you just squint your eyes and tilt your head, they maybe could give you, but what they are actually able to give you. Exactly. And and sitting in the reality of that, what they are actually able to give me and not getting frustrated with it, but honoring that it brings up emotions on my end and giving myself permission to say, you, it's okay for you to be upset. It's okay for you to feel disappointed. It's okay for you to have all of these difficult, complex emotions while also holding space for knowing that these are people who are giving you what they can. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and instead of minimizing Aww, it and instead yeah. of criticizing it or judging it or going to the extreme of I'm going to end this friendship or relationship, yes. right? <laughs> like it's just honoring that this is a hard space to be in and also honoring that it now requires me to shift in how I build connections, you know, instead of because no one person can be everything to you, you know, and I'm not asking of everything from these particular people in my life. Um, but because there is this closeness, sometimes you want the people who you love so dearly and who you are so well connected with to just know how to show up for you and have all the tools. Right. Um, but I'm just in a season where I'm realizing that that's not the case. And I'm being patient with that. Um, I'm being loving with that. And I'm also focusing on their strengths. I'm not just focusing on where I think they're lacking. I'm focusing on what they are able to give me. And that is how I can be at ease with these relationships as well, because there's so much care. There's so much love. There's so much nurture, even when I know that there's another domain in life where I'm not getting my needs met. What I love about that is that it's not, you're not abandoning yourself in it. You're not, you are saying, like, I'm allowed to feel disappointed and hurt. And you're not acting as if you have everything that you want from this person. And you are at the very same time, like, sort of grading them on a curve, right? You are grading them according <laughs> to what their current capacity is. What, what do you find, what opens up for you in the space between yourself and that person when you're able to practice that patience and grace? Like, what do you get from the relationship then when you let go of the wish that it could be different? Mm, I get so much because, like I said, it allows me to focus on their strengths. It allows me to focus on the areas where they actually can show up for me. And it makes me realize that's also important. You know, I appreciate the acts of service and I appreciate the ways that 
they are able to pour into me. Hmm. And when I let go of these expectations and when I honor that this is just the space and the season that we're in, and this is what my truth is when it comes to not feeling like particular needs are being met, it's making room for me to be loved in a different way. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that feels feels good still, despite, again, you know, I believe in the power of and. It's not an either (laughs) or thing. It's I feel loved and cared for and I want more. (laughs) But I'm recognizing that maybe the more that I want can't come from this person because I can't force people to have particular tools, right? I can't force them to do healing work. I can't force them to be the thing that I want them to be. And I've engaged in that radical acceptance already. And I've made peace with knowing that these are people who are not being stingy. These are people who are not um, trying to withhold from me. These are literally people who are just giving me what they're giving themselves, you know? And so it's not like they're saying, I want to deprive you, Mina, but I'm going to give myself everything in the world. It's like, girl, this is what I'm giving myself. So of course I'm going to give it to you. (laughs) And I think because I'm able to recognize that also, it brings a lot of peace in the relationship. Oh, I can imagine. I can imagine. I was just thinking about how when you're the, um, when you're the one who, like that awareness that you are a disappointment, to somebody else, right? Like, I know that I'm not giving Mina what she wants. Like that feeling of feeling like you are a disappointment to somebody who matters to you is a, mm. you know, it's a really painful feeling. And so what you're saying is that you're you're releasing them from that fear or that sense of being a disappointment by focusing on the ways that they are giving and, and really resisting the urge to slip into hierarchy, which I think can happen when we're in this healing work. Like I'm farther along on my journey or I have more than you. I think there are ways that we can get a little like sneakily hierarchical in this place. And so I can imagine that your loved ones are liberated from the sense that they are disappointing you, that they're actually, they're just, they're giving you something that actually you, you have learned how to value. And, you know, the, the thing that you said too, that I think is important for me to unpack is the difference between like them being a disappointment and also knowing that this one thing feels disappointing, you know? And I think that I have been able to really let people know that like, I still love you and I still see all these amazing characteristics in who you are as a person. Um, Because I think too, like when we feel like we're not showing up a particular way in a a friendship or even a relationship, um, we make it this moral failing. Mm -hmm. And I really want the people in my life, and this is just for everyone listening too, to know that like, it's okay if there are certain things that you don't have the capacity to do, and it doesn't define who you are as a whole human being. But in this one domain of life, I recognize that this does feel disappointing, but I still love you and I still appreciate you. So you're not disappointing me in the context of our whole relationship, but in this one area where there's a lack, it does feel disappointing, but I also thank you for what you can give me in this season and what you have been giving me that has allowed me to flourish, you know, in this relationship and continue to grow with you in this relationship. And I think that having that mindset has brought so much ease to my relationships, but it also has brought me so much peace because it takes the pressure off of feeling like, you know, 
if my needs aren't being met, people don't love me. Or if my needs aren't being met, people aren't trying to care for me. And I know that's not true, you know? And so it's brought me so much peace to be able to sit in the nuances of life and in the gray area of life with the people that I love. And I think that that has helped me tremendously as I continue to grow and become this new woman that I am, that I wasn't a year ago. I definitely wasn't this person three years ago. And I think I'm trying to keep up with myself. And so it makes sense that the people around me are like, girl, we're trying to keep up with you too. (laughs) That's right. That's right. (laughs) They have to get to know you again and again Again and again. again. Okay. So your debut book is out in the world and it's called Owning Our Struggles. And the, the main thesis of your book is all about how community helps us heal from trauma. So can you start a little bit by giving us a sense of when you first started to identify the importance of community in therapeutic work? So I grew up in a very thriving community. And so I don't think that I had an awakening, I would say, in my therapeutic work. It is something that has just been embedded in me culturally that I always knew but I think my what I woke up to was the lack of community care as a framework in the therapeutic field. I am the youngest of 13. Um, I share this story a lot. I come from a blended family, and I believe our family is the first community we are born into. So having so many siblings and being the youngest, and because I come from a blended family, uh, my father had me at a very late age. Um, and so my siblings... My older siblings are about 20 to 32 years older than me. So I had a lot of parents growing up. You sure did. Uh, I did. I had (laughs) a lot of parents growing up. I'm also first generation Panamanian and Colombian. And so my household was the hub for a lot of my family members who were migrating here to the U.S. And so not only did I have a bunch of siblings, I had all these cousins and I had all these uncles and I had all these people who were raising me and then bringing it out to how my family taught me to be in community. You know, there are so many people in my life that even now as an adult, I call them my aunt, I call them my uncle, and we're not even related by blood, but they're a part of my community. And so the big wake-up call for me happened, however, when I realized I really want to make this more mainstream if it's if it's possible, because I think we know so much about self-care, um, but we don't know too much about community care. And what brought me to this was actually fast forward when I decided to get my master's in social work at NYU. I interned at Hazelden Betty Ford Foundation, which is a substance abuse um, intensive outpatient program. And the model of Hazelden is group therapy, um, intensive group therapy. So four sessions per week, running 90 minutes with individual care on top of that. And it was that moment in life that I was like, whoa, nobody talks about group therapy, but this is fascinating. This is amazing. It is powerful. You have all these strangers coming together, talking about things that bring up so much shame, things that bring up so much hurt. They're caring for each other. They're honoring each other's needs. There's also conflict happening in the room. And guess what? They have to handle it before the session ends. Yep. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And when you're a group therapy leader, which is what I was doing, you recognize when conflict is happening in the space and you trust the individuals in that room 
to, to carry that conflict and to engage in a restorative justice model where they're honoring the person who feels hurt and the person who feels hurt is being able to vocalize the pain that they're experiencing, what hurt them. But the perpetrator is also now learning um, how they can hold themselves accountable. But we're also not turning our back on the perpetrator. We're figuring out ways that we can nourish them because we also recognize that this is coming from their own wounded place. This is coming from their own trauma. And so how instead of isolating you or ostracizing you from the group, how do we also hold you accountable for your harm, but also still make you know that you are a lovable, worthy human being um, that belongs in this space as well. But there are some rules that you have to abide by and respect of people is one of them. And how do we teach you that in this space? And after I left Hazelden, I continued on in my therapeutic journey as a therapist, but group therapy was something that was never offered um, in the programs that I worked at. And so I said, you know what, I guess I'm going to have to take this community care model and framework that I believe in and develop it on my own in the work that I do as Mina B. And so that is what led me to my book, Owning Our Struggles, and really teaching people what community care is, how to engage in community care building, how to engage in collective healing. But that is the journey that I went on um, to get to where I am today to really focus in on how to teach people the concepts of community care. In your book, you do it so beautifully. You You cover so much ground. You know, you take us, I mean, it is a self-help book, but you you have got the self in context. You've got the self in family context. You've got the self in intimate partnership context, in friendship context, and then in the larger macro systems of oppression. So you really guide us. You know, it is so clear, you know, as you say on the very, very first page of the book, self-care is the bridge to community care, and community care is the bridge to community healing. And that is just like woven throughout the book. Can you tell us a little bit more about how you think about self-care as the bridge to community care and then community care as the bridge to community healing? Yes. So that self-care piece really focuses on the work that we're doing on ourselves. Um, this kind of brings me back to the self-help industry and that I-focused healing. Because I do think I-focused healing is important, but we also need we-focused healing, which is the community care piece that I think is often missing. The I-focused healing is really learning to be introspective and recognize your trauma, recognize your pain, literally do the work of reflecting on your experiences in life and trying to process how it shapes your beliefs, how it shapes your values, because at the end of the day, um, we are born into a pre-existing world that as soon as we come earthside, we have our family projecting their values on us. We have society projecting its values on us. And it can be really hard to navigate who am I as a person? And then when you throw in trauma, especially if it is chronic and complex PTSD, where you have experienced multiple forms of trauma and abuse and and it has been ongoing and it literally shaped your whole identity. It shaped your development. It shaped who you are. It's literally shaping your brain. It can be really hard now to be an adult and move through the world feeling safe or knowing how to engage in safety, how to make others feel safe and know what you need to feel safe. So we do need to do that I work to understand and explore who am I? 
What makes me happy? What makes me mad? Where do I need boundaries in life? What are the things that I experienced that has left a marker on me? And I can heal that wound, but I might realize that wound still has a scar. And I'm not going to forget my past because we can't erase our history, but we can do the work of figuring out how to transform our future when we engage in healing tools. So that is the self-care piece. Now, the reason why bridging that to community care is important is because we're not doing this healing work to exist in a vacuum. We're doing this healing work so that we can learn how to integrate into a community and build supportive networks of people and safe relationships because we are biologically wired to be in community with other people. And so this is what it looks like to take that I-centered work and bridge it to the we-centered work. And the reason why this is so important is because often that I-centered work looks like me going to therapy. I'm complaining about my parents or I'm complaining (laughs) about my mom or my partner pissed me off or my colleague did this to me. And so it's a safe space for you to really just share the parts of you that are hurting and investigate the ways people have hurt you. But I think what's often missing from the self-help industry, the books that we read, um, and sometimes even in a therapeutic relationship, is recognizing that traumatized bodies have the potential to traumatize other bodies. And so as you sit there and you complain and you really not even just complain, but you talk about this deep pain and these wounds that you've experienced and the things that you've suffered from, Sometimes you might neglect the things that you've done to other people, the ways you may have harmed other people when you were in a traumatized state, the ways that you might also be the problem, the ways that you might be causing others harm because of your inability to know safety. So therefore, you don't even know how to make other people feel safe. Right. And so that is where the community care piece comes in, because, again, we're not healing so that we can isolate ourselves from the world We're healing so that we can integrate into the world and build those healthy, supportive systems that we want to exist in and actually need to exist in. And so that is what it looks like for us to build bridge self-care to community care. Now, the community care piece, bridging that to community healing just literally looks like collective healing and recognizing that the reason why the world feels so broken is because of the contributions that people have made to this world for it to be broken. And recognizing that there is a greater system happening around us, but people also play a role in systems, right? We have government, we have legislative officials, we have all of these people and we have these terms, but guess who sits behind those terms? People. People. Human beings, (laughs) (laughs) right? This is why we vote for people, Mm -hmm. right? We're voting for a president who is a person, right? We're voting for mayors who are people, right? And so community healing is now you being able to say, I've done this eye-centered work because I've been able to um, reflect on my childhood trauma. I've been able to reflect on my painful experiences that leads me to being an anxious person or leads me to having some narcissistic tendencies or leads me to just being um, someone who's afraid or someone who's anxious. And now I'm bridging that to community care where I'm figuring out how do I now do all this work to heal for me and not just for me, but for the people I want to be in community with, my family, my friends, and the strangers that I have yet to meet who will one day maybe be more than a stranger. They might be a friend. They might be a romantic partner at some point, right? And then we ask ourselves, what is my contribution to the greater world around me? How can I 
play a role in uplifting people? Um, how can I play a role in uplifting society? And by doing so, that is what it looks like to engage in collective healing, where I'm holding myself accountable. I'm doing this healing work. I'm managing and healing from my trauma, but I'm also being a community advocate where I'm making sure that I am not contributing to someone else's trauma. Beautiful. Beautiful. So well said. There are two things that are absolutely true. Grandma loves you, and she would never say no to McDonald's. So treat yourself to a Grandma McFlurry with your order today. It's what Grandma would want. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At participating McDonald's for a limited time. National Outlet Shopping Day is back. Join us June 8th and 9th at Simon Premium Outlets nationwide. Score thousands of can't-miss deals from brands you love all weekend long. They've got up to 65% off every day. And the National Outlet Shopping Day deals are even better. Visit premiumoutlets.com slash NOSD to find a premium outlet near you. That's premiumoutlets.com slash NOSD. She said, get out the chat room and clean my Glad Girl Group coming at you with a throwback jam. That was Glad Force Flex Drawstring Trash Bags featuring Pine Sol Original Scent. And that's better than all good. It's all glad. You know, right in the beginning of the book, when you are, when you're first kind of inviting the reader in and kind of preparing them for the journey you're about to take us on, you do something that I found to be so elegant and so subversive. And you know that your reader is picking this book up for themselves, right? They are, I'm going to heal me and I want to feel more whole. But you tell your reader right up front that even as you read for yourself, you are reading for your community. So I want to, I want to read you what you wrote. May I please, <laughs> I'm going to read you to you, Mina, okay? <laughs> Here's what you said. You said, it is impossible for me to write a book that fits the needs of every individual reading it. So instead of trying to imagine yourself and everything I discuss or trying to project your experiences into places that do not fit, be mindful and practice being at peace with not being the intended audience for everything you consume. Allow the bits and pieces that resonate to do their work and allow yourself to engage your imagination by holding space for the people who can actually relate. Because although what you read may not be fitting for you, it might be fitting for your neighbor, partner, or friend. And community care is learning to look beyond ourselves and not make everything about us. And instead, learning to understand the stories of others who have different experiences than we do. Mm. I mean... Why did, why did you, why was it so important for you to just give your reader that bit before you've even taken them into inner child and family of origin? Tell us about that little lesson that you wanted to give your reader right up top. That is because for our own survival, we are very egocentric and eye focused. And so a lot of people move through society, um, again, wanting to be the intended audience for everything that they engage in. And I think that because community care is not a framework many people are used to reading, especially in the self-help sector. You know, again, self-help is what it is, the healing of self, the helping of self. And so you are often thinking that you're going to pick up this material and it is going to speak directly to you and only to you. 
And it can be really hard for you to imagine, maybe I picked this book up and I'm reading it to learn about my partner who I love so dearly. (laughs) Because this everything I read fits them and it doesn't fit me at all, but it gives me a window into their world. What would it look like for me to actually still take time to digest this content and not be so eye focused and say, well, if it's not for me, then it's a waste of my time. What would it look like if I actually said, you know what, I'm going to keep reading this because now I'm intrigued and I'm learning so much about the people around me and I'm learning how to pour into them. I'm learning how to meet their needs. I'm learning how to be a better friend, a better parent, a better child to my adult parents and a better person and community member. And I often I can't say sit here and say I've read every self-help book on the market. Right. (laughs) But in my experience from the things that I read, it is always teaching us skills and tools that we can develop for ourselves. But often it's not teaching us how to bridge that to other people. And I really wanted to provide a framework where people understood and knew that sometimes you're not going to be the main character. Sometimes it's okay to put your ego to the side and recognize when it's in the driver's seat and imagine a world where you prioritize the needs of other people before your own sometimes. And that's not self-abandonment. That's relationality. It's not. Mm-hmm. Exactly. You write in the beginning that healing work is all about finding the broken places so that you can be put back together. And then you take us through different places where, you know, different sources of where some of that brokenness may come from, whether it's racism or family of origin or difficulties in friendships. Can you talk to us about some of the signs that we can look for within ourselves that would show us that we're not owning a particular part of our struggle? Like, how does that, how can somebody go from like a behavior that they're exhibiting in their lives to inquiry about, okay, what might I not be owning about my struggle that's showing up in my behavior right now? Mm. The first thing when you say behavior, I would say repeated patterns and situations. Um, What I mean by that is sometimes people have a hard time with reality. Sometimes people have a hard time with accepting truth. And a big sign is when you find yourself in repeated situations or circumstances, and it can be easy to blame everyone else instead of doing some introspective work to say, well, maybe I keep picking partners who act a particular way because I'm scared of safety. And the onus is also on me to figure out why am I afraid to date someone who shows love and affection? Why do I ignore red flags? My body alerts me in the beginning and lets me know this person is not safe for me. This person isn't even aligned with what I want. They don't even fit my desires. Um, But I'm still pursuing them. What's happening? Right. And that's really important because sometimes we have these problems in front of us and it's very natural for us to say, here's a problem. Now you do the work to fix it. Right. Because you are the person inciting this problem instead of saying, well, what is my contribution to the problem and what control do I have over the solution? I think it's very easy to forget that we have 
control over certain things in life. No, there are going to be certain dynamics and things in life we cannot control. And I think we all know that. But there are lots of things we actually can control. And relationships is one of those areas where we can say, even if I didn't choose you, which is my family, for example, let's say there, I can still decide how I want to show up in this relationship with you and what keeps me safe. So I think the first thing that I always encourage people to think about is what are some patterns you consistently create when you are in relationships with people, right? And those patterns could look like, what are you looking for in a person? A pattern could look like, I say I want this, but then when I meet this other thing, I self-abandon. Because what is the because? I don't feel worthy. Mm -hmm. Or I say I want this thing, but I don't feel like I'm deserving of this thing. I say I want this thing, but I actually realize I'm not ready for this thing, (laughs) you know, and that can awaken us to a deeper part of ourselves. And I also think that another thing that we can pay attention to um, is the ways in which we show up in our relationships and the limits that we set in them. And this is where boundaries come in, where we teach ourselves that we are allowed to have limits. Um, Whether you believe you can or can't, your body lets you know, because the reality is we can't be everything to everyone. Um, And we can't take on everything or we're literally going to crash and burn and literally get sick. Right. Um, Stress impacts the immune system. And so the body already has this internal mechanism to know that you can't take on too much or it is going to shut down. And I think one of the things that a lot of people can learn to be in tune with is when they need to start setting limits around things and trust that they are allowed to set limits, that you don't have to feel guilty for setting limits. Um, Guilt means I did something bad. And we also have to reframe the way we see guilt because society has created this um, guilty conditioning that we a lot of us experience that has been passed down through generations. And so when we learn to engage in those practices and just be reflective in those areas, it can help us thrive a little better. Yeah. You know, you just brought up boundaries. And I really liked one of the things that you did in the book was you introduced us to your model of best around boundary setting. The B is for the boundary. The E is for the emotional awareness. The S is self-soothing. And then the T is the thoughts, the alternative thoughts. So can you can you talk us through if a listener is getting ready to set a boundary or clarify a boundary of somebody in their life, how could they use that best method? Yeah. So the reason why I created the best method is because I truly don't believe that people have an issue with setting boundaries. I think people have an issue with discomfort and they have an issue with self-regulation. When you feel fear, so you allow yourself to engage in emotional reasoning, which means if I feel afraid, then I'm not supposed to do this thing because it is going to be scary, then you're not going to do the thing. So often when people are like, Mina, how do I know I need to set a boundary? Often that lets me know, you know, you need to set a boundary. You know what the boundary is, but there is an emotional blockage. And so your nervous system is dysregulated. And that is why you won't set the boundary because there's fear there and there's discomfort. So we don't need any more scripts. (laughs) We don't need the language. What we need is 
I have to learn how to manage the discomfort that is running through my body. That is what I need. And when I learn (laughs) to manage the discomfort, I will be able to say my boundary in any language, in any particular way. (laughs) I don't need your script. I don't don't need need your your script. script. I already know. I could say no 15 times. I could say it as many different ways as Mm -hmm. possible because I feel brave enough now to say it. And so that is why I created the best method, because that process really helps us regulate our nervous system. So that is why the B part starts off with what is the boundary? As you can see, it's straightforward. I don't say here are some scripts or here are things. My question to the reader is, what is the boundary? What do you want for yourself? Because you already know what you want for yourself. Now let's jump into the hard part, which is now let's talk about your feelings. Let's talk about the emotions that's attached to this boundary, because that is a thing that's getting in the way of you setting it. You might say my emotional awareness is I'm really afraid that if I set this boundary with this particular person, they're going to yell at me or they're going to scream at me. Why do you think that? Because that's what they've done in the past. If I set this emotional boundary, I'm scared that it's going to alter my friendship or my relationship because it's a new boundary. And what if they don't like it? I'm scared that if I set this boundary, other people are going to be sad or disappointed or uncomfortable. And I don't know how to sit now with their discomfort. You see how discomfort is always at the root of the boundary problem, right? And so now we are doing the work of recognizing the emotional barrier and blockage that is in the way. So the next thing that we have to work on is What are the things that you need to do to self-soothe and teach your nervous system that you are safe enough, that things are safe enough to set this boundary? You have an emotional awareness already of the things that are coming up for you, which is why you haven't set the boundary. Now we need to move to action. The action is the self-soothing techniques that I need to engage in that might help manage the discomfort. So that is where a big part of these tools come in. So the self-soothing could look like, you know what? I need to engage in audio journaling, which is a practice that I share in the book. Mm -hmm. The reason why audio journaling can be really helpful compared to traditional writing journaling is because I find that when we can hear ourselves speaking out loud, we can listen to the discrepancies in our thinking. And so... I am someone who, one, I practice what I preach. I talk to myself all the time, (laughs) y'all. I do it all the time, okay? And this is where audio journaling came from when I started sharing it with my clients and they loved it. And they were like, Mina, this has been so refreshing for me because one, journaling, I find myself like dumping out these problems, but I'm not taking the time to really reflect on what I wrote. Where if I hear myself speaking, I kind of have to hear it and process it at the same time because I'm hearing these discrepancies come out my mouth the same way if a friend called me and said, hey, this happened at work today. Can you believe it? I might be like, girl, I think that you might be reacting to this situation in a way that, you know, is not appropriate or maybe it's harmful or maybe, you know, they're calling us for some sort of advice or guidance and we're picking up things in the way they're thinking about a situation and we're now equipped to hold space for them because we're hearing these discrepancies. And so when we're talking out loud, we can hear our own discrepancies and say, you know what? That actually didn't make sense. Or as I'm hearing myself say, this person might lash out on me. And as I say that, I might say, but wait, 
did they ever lash out on you? Where is this coming from? You know, and so that is why that is an important technique. Another self-soothing technique could look like, okay, I want to set this boundary. What are some self-regulation practices that I might need to verbalize the boundary? So maybe I need to learn how to engage in some deep breathing. And this is where the meditation piece comes in. More of that breathwork piece. I am a big fan of breathwork because when I tell you it has helped to shift rage and anger out of my body into the universe. And this is why I, I truly believe that the same body we hurt in is the same body that we heal in. The body is hardwired with tools and mechanisms to keep us safe. The same way it is hardwired with tools and mechanisms that go off when it feels like the body is unsafe. So we have to learn to tap into the tools and mechanisms to say, hey, let's shut off the switch. We are safe right now. And the best way to do that sometimes is to focus on our breath because we may not be in situations where we have a you know, a stress ball, or we're not going to talk out loud, maybe when we're in the middle of a meeting, right? And so focusing on your breath allows you to move that internal pent up energy out of the body so that you can feel more at ease to now tell yourself that I am safe enough to say what I need to say, right? That's another self-soothing technique. Other things that I encourage people to do um, is ask yourself, how can I set the boundary, right? And so is this a boundary that I can send a text or is this a boundary where I need to pick up the phone and verbalize this thing to the person? When it comes to sending a text, I love this now in the era that we're living in because we have AI, we have tools like Grammarly, and now you can literally just go into the system and say, please write up a professional and, and decent, gracious way of saying you can't spend the night at my house during the holidays. I don't right. have the room for you, right? <laughs> Help me to say it in the most you know gracious mm-hmm. way possible. And so that is where the S piece comes in. So now you're telling yourself, okay, I have the emotional awareness. Now I can self-soothe. And the T part is also important. That's your thought process. What are the thoughts that are also arising for you? And so when you're paying attention to your thoughts, you can start to ask yourself what is rational and what is irrational. It's rational for you to say this person might start screaming because they always scream. And so since that's rational, you might also say my self-soothing technique is I am going to disengage when they start to scream. Or since I know that's how they handle conflict, they're emotionally immature, I'm not going to call them to set this boundary. I'm just going to maybe text them if that is a particular boundary that is suitable for that style of communication, right? Because there are some times where we need to communicate verbally, but there are times where you say, you know what, I don't want to deal with you screaming, so I'm going to just send you a text. And when you respond, I'm going to just delete it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and when you respond, I'm going to just put my phone on do not disturb so that I can take a deep breath and go self-soothe before I pick up the phone and have to respond again versus we're stuck on the phone and I have to hear you yelling and screaming. Or in that moment, my boundary is going to be to self-soothe. I need to let you know I got to hang up. Yeah. And so yeah. that T is really helping us understand what are the rational thoughts and irrational thoughts and the ones that are irrational, how can we challenge them? And the ones that are rational, you can now say, these are the self-soothing techniques that I'm going to put in place for the particular thoughts that I think can come true based off my experiences with this person. Yeah. 
I mean, it's so, so helpful. And what I love most is that nowhere in the best process is anything about the other person, what they're doing or not doing, or how to, how to get them to, you know, there's, it's, it's all about really, you are helping people claim the power that they have, yes. right? To The power to regulate themselves, the power to speak truth with clarity, and the power to release other people to respond the way that they're going to respond, because we are not in charge of that. But having all those tools of knowing that I can actually handle myself and care for myself in the wake of whatever response they come to me with is so, so powerful. Yeah. You devote an entire chapter to the impact of racism. And that chapter begins with you saying, being black isn't exhausting. White supremacy is exhausting. And you take us through one of your kind of earliest core memories of an experience of racism that you had that led your parents to have to have with you the first of many conversations about the impact of racism that it was having on you in that moment and that it would continue to have on you in your life. So I wonder if you could speak a little bit to the advice you have or the guidance you have for listeners who are who are doing that work, who are needing to both foster safety for their kids and also feel a sense of responsibility to have these really difficult, essential conversations. Oh, so loaded. I know, um, I know. Yeah, it was really important for me to hold space and share that um, in this body of work. One, because often it's missing in a yep. lot of bodies of work when it comes to wellness and mental health. And two, it's just our reality. And so I don't, I don't want to ever omit pieces of our reality. And so I think for people who have to have these conversations the same way my parents did um, with me after I had my what I call my first racial encounter and learning what is racism after hearing my parents say, it's because we're Black and I never heard that before, right? So what does that actually mean and why did you say it? I think in this day and age, it's important for us to find age-appropriate ways to talk to children and find ways to support their well-being by, one, giving them the skills to identify their racial wounds and what that looks like is, you know, how they feel about their skin color, how they feel about their identity as a whole. And that is important because we live in a world that is still racialized and a world that um, is still rooted in white supremacy. We still see, you know, the white dolls getting, um, front row center mm -hmm. in the toy section, or you still see the white characters on the TV screen, or even when Black characters are being placed in certain roles, you notice that they might um, be lighter skinned, or they might have a particular hair texture, or there's just one way of being that still erases a whole group of people who are um, Black across the diaspora. And so... One, I think it's about how can you find age-appropriate ways to talk to your children about race and um, help them understand their identity. And the reason why age-appropriateness is important is because a, a two-year-old or a five-year-old is not going to really understand certain things the way a 15-year-old will, right? And so we know that um, there's been a rise of a lot of young Black children being murdered by police officers that a five-year-old may not be able to comprehend or understand 
And so are there books, are there shows that you can help your kids engage with so they have a clear understanding of their identity? They have a clear understanding of who leaders are that look like them. They know people that they can say, this is somebody who works in this particular field that I admire or even look up to and they look just like me, right? Um, I think that's really important. As that child ages and gets older, self-esteem building is so important. Um, having them consider their weight, having them consider because, you know, fat phobia is a thing um, in many communities, right? Um, and so how do we teach children to love their bodies of all shapes and sizes in a world that still honors skinniness and thinks that's beautiful? Um, how do you teach your child to know more about their hair texture? In the Black community, we will talk about our hair in the context of like, your hair is 3B or your hair is 4A. And so like teaching your kid, like you have 4C here and your hair is really, really beautiful. But I want you to know your hair looks a little different in case they're asking or inquiring, right? Like your hair looks a little different because your hair texture is just different from this particular person's. And everybody has different hair textures. All hair textures are beautiful. All skin tones are beautiful, right? Um, I think that's also very important for self-esteem building and just really teaching children of color that they're beautiful, that they're loved for who they are. And when they feel like the world isn't making space for them, how can you show up in your family system to make space for them? And by doing that, that means sticking to your roots and honoring your ancestral practices. Uh, as I shared earlier, I'm Panamanian. And so in my home, we speak Creole. Um, and so I'll be on the phone with my friends sometimes and they're like, oh, shoot, I just heard your accent come out. <laughs> and I'm like, well, yeah, I'm like, this is who I am when I'm talking to my family, right? But you may not get Mina, the Mina you're listening to right now on the podcast. This is not how I sound when I'm talking to my family. And I'm so tied to my ancestral roots that we understand that um, having an accent is not a bad thing. Um, how I speak, the fact that my English language switches because I also speak African-American vernacular English, but I also speak Creole. And so sometimes I even butcher English <laughs> when I'm having a regular conversation, um, right? And so how do I, but I honor that because I recognize I am speaking in my ancestral tongue. I'm speaking in my cultural tongue, you know? And so I honor that though, because my parents taught me to honor my culture as a Black Panamanian woman. And that is what it means to bring that into our households. Um, even thinking in the mental wealth industry, right? Um, thinking about the foods that we eat, like those cultural customs, thinking about spirituality, thinking about the different ways that we care for ourselves, even through music. I grew up listening to soca and calypso music, right? That is healing to me. Um, that plays a role in healing my mental health. And that is what keeps me tied to my roots. And I'm not ashamed of that. And I think those are the practices we need to be teaching our children who are BIPOC, um, teaching them that their accent is okay, teaching them that the way they speak is okay, teaching them that the music and their cultural customs are wonderful. They contribute to the progression of American society. And so how can we learn to love who we are so our children are also loving who they are? And I want to add that as well, because the intergenerational trauma piece can cause this distortion where if you as the parent isn't first loving yourself, and if you as the parent isn't accepting of your accent, if you as the parent is really trying to mold your household into this um 
American white centered space, then it is going to be difficult for your BIPOC child to move through the world. Right. So I also want to add that piece, too, because um, we model for kids and kids are looking up to us even when they're teenagers. Right. They're looking up to us. Um, They're looking up to the adult figures. And so I also just want to speak to the importance of adults doing that inner work for themselves also. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, the the way that I framed the question to you was about the the trauma of your of your story. And in your answer, you spoke not just about trauma, but about joy and culture mm-hmm. and heritage and connection, right? And so I think that in the way that you answered, you are modeling that both those exist alongside, right? The tragedy and the cruelty of white supremacy exists alongside the beauty and richness of blackness. Like that that was embedded in your answer, that those two things need to be held. And you, I really loved also in your, I think it's so, I mean, you know, the, our field, you had cited a statistic in your, in the book about how 84% of therapists are white. And so it is not a surprise that the self-help industry has been dominated by white authors. And it's so important in your, your book is a self-help book and you seamlessly weave together the healing of the self and the healing of the big picture. And you are clear from the beginning that a white reader is going to take not this, not not maybe the same exact bits, but is going to take immense, immense gifts and lessons and healing away from this book as a BIPOC reader will, and that the pieces about racism are as important, if not more important, for your white readers to wrestle with and sit in, um, not just in terms of decentering their own experience to understand the experiences of people of color, but to understand all of what it means to be white in this culture. And so you also do a really powerful job in the book of toggling between caring for your readers of color and inviting in, calling in, calling forth your white readers as well. So I just want to give you all of the credit in the world for the way that you did that. Thank you. So Mina, I am going to have to let you go soon, but before I let you go, can we please talk to Kira, who has written us a question from the UK? Yes. Kira uses she, her pronouns, by the way. Kira says, I have a landlady who has harassed me. I'm trying to move, but while I'm still here, I'm trying to manage my reactions. I grew up in an abusive family, and I'm conscious that I don't want to fall back into old trauma patterns. How do you know if your responding is relating to here and now? I don't want to respond like a scared six-year-old. I am scared that I'm responding like that. As I felt unsafe when I grew up, this is really hard for me. It's hard for me to remind myself that I'm now a 29-year-old woman, that I'm better resourced, and fundamentally, I am safer than I used to be when I was a child living with my abusive family. But this is hard, and it's triggering for me. I do a lot of stuff to ground myself and process things, but I'm scared that I'm not doing enough. I'm probably also putting a lot of pressure on myself. I just want to do a better job than when I was little. Mina, what would you want to suggest to Kira about her question and her experience? Mm, I hold so much space for you, Kira. Yeah. Um, And I also love how it sounds like you are being so gentle with yourself because that is so hard. But I can tell that you are doing the work of being introspective and being self-aware Um, And recognizing that this is an area that I need to problem solve in, but I also recognize the barrier, but I also recognize I might be putting a lot of pressure on myself. And so the first thing I want to say to you, Kira, is to engage in a piece of self-trust. 
and knowing that you actually do have the ability to keep yourself safe. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that is really important because when you are a child, the reality is you are dependent on your caregivers to keep you safe. So when they are not doing that and they're failing there, um, it can be really hard to maneuver through the world and now trust that, oh, shoot, I'm an adult now. I know how to do this. Right. So I want to speak to that because it makes sense that even as a 20 something, you're still struggling with processing it because Technically, your whole life, um, you were supposed to have that modeled for you and taught and you were robbed of that. Mm-hmm. I want you to now reflect on ways that you might regress when you feel unsafe, um, because it's very typical for people who have childhood trauma wounds that we might regress to the age when our trauma started as a way to deal with conflict to keep ourselves safe. So it sounds like there might be some people pleasing here because I hear you saying you're being harassed, but it also sounds like you haven't had the courage to assert yourself and say something. So I wonder if you're trying to keep the peace the way you may have. I wonder if it's possible you were the kid who tried to keep the peace in your home. I also wonder if you um, struggled with um, feeling a sense of emotional coercion where um, you were not allowed to exhibit feelings in the homes and so you really had to uh, also engage in people pleasing to make sure that you were not yelled at or some people were spanked, right? There are a lot of things that may have happened. And so I want you to be thinking about um, how your trauma responses from childhood manifest now into adulthood. And that could help you understand oh, I am acting like my six year old self again um, because when I was six, I used to run. So now I'm just a conflict avoidant where if there was stuff happening in the home, I ran away from it. I spent the night at a friend's house or I ran into my room and I dissociated. And now I'm doing that as an adult. So I think unpacking that is helpful because I do hear in your um, question, you know, I want to make sure I'm not being that six-year-old again. And I think one of the best ways to know that is to ask yourself, well, how did your six-year-old self respond to conflict and trauma and how are you responding to it now? And you might notice that there's some parallels here where you're like, oh, actually, I am doing what six-year-old me did. There are a few things now to help you move into action. I am a big fan of, as we all know, community care. And so I do think when we're dealing with hard things that sometimes we don't have to put the pressure on ourselves to deal with it alone. First, I ask for you to think about who is in your community. Are there people that the same way you're writing in to say this is an issue I'm dealing with? Are there friends and people that you feel safe with that you can process this with? Because there's nothing like support and emotional um, safety with the people that we love and know us intrinsically. You know, that is your first community. That is your circle of intimacy. And those are the people who also help us feel empowered. When you call up that close friend who's like, my landlord is harassing me. And they're like, girl, I want you to feel brave enough to say something. Right. Um, Sometimes we need, you know, in my culture, we say the person who puts the battery in your back. (laughs) So I want 
want you to think about who can you call who's going to put the battery in your back to say you deserve to <laughs> assert yourself. You deserve to stick up for yourself. You are not being crazy. You are not overreacting, right? We just need a fan base sometimes to remind us of our worth and to remind us that we are in control and that we're not the six-year-old that we think we might be or that our trauma regresses us into. The next thing is I also want you to do the best method that we talked about in this um, scenario. So I don't know what the harassment is, but I see that a boundary clearly needs to be made. There is some fear here. So we kind of have an understanding of what the emotions are. But I also want you to think about the self-soothing piece as well as the thoughts that are arising for you. I want you to ask yourself first to communicate with my landlord. What do I think is the best approach that is going to help me feel safe? Because learning to assert yourself requires baby steps. So do you communicate with your landlord through an email? And I am no legal person, but I will say in this case, I would highly recommend having a paper trail. If you are feeling, yeah, if you feel like you're being harassed by your landlord, then maybe this is a conversation that is safer to have via email so that if there were an issue to arise where you had to take legal action, action, you could print these forms and documents and also state that this person never responded to you. You could also share in the email. So I would advise you to write an email to your landlord, express um, what the issue is and how you would like that issue to be repaired and also communicate in the email. I also would appreciate if we handled all correspondence via email. So you also get to let them know this is my boundary. I can only communicate with you via email. So please don't call my phone. If they do call your phone, I'm going to need to have this conversation via email, or I want to let you know that I'm recording this conversation. I want you to feel safe enough to be able to do that um, as a way to protect yourself legally. Um, the next thing I want you to think about is those other self-soothing practices that you need. And so now you might say, okay, you know what? It is probably safer and easier for me to write an email versus picking up my phone to call the landlord. But what if I see them? I'm still like shaking up, right? And so I want you to be thinking about what self-soothing looks like for you. Understand that you cannot control how your landlord responds. But I am going to say if this is someone who has been harassing you, this is someone who may not be emotionally mature. So I'm going to start off by saying expect your landlord to possibly have a negative reaction. We have to walk into our boundaries with realistic ideologies because sometimes we'll say, I want to set this boundary and I'm afraid this thing might happen. And I want us to be comfortable with truth and know I'm afraid this might happen because it's happened before. Right. And so don't gaslight yourself so I can outmaneuver them by equipping myself to say, OK, they're probably going to have an attitude. I'm prepared now. They are probably going to be upset. I'm prepared now. And so I think that is so important for us to be realistic when people are showing us who they are, because that actually gives you your preparation and knowing, all right, they're probably going to call me and raise their voice. So I'm not going to answer. Right? This is my boundary on how I'm going to interact with you, because every single time I bring something, something up to you, this is how you respond. And so I want you to know that you do have the power to give yourself what you need. You do have the power to um, 
help yourself feel safe. And I want you to just be thinking about what does it look like to approach just in a way that feels good to you for your nervous system. And so someone might say, no, you need to pick up the phone and call. But if your nervous system is not ready for that, then what does it look like to give yourself permission to say, you know what, I'm going to have a communication trail and I'm just going to email my landlord and have this conversation with them. You know, um, I'm going to write them a letter. Like what are the other practices that I can do that still allows me to assert myself and not be avoidant, but it is the method that also gives me some semblance of peace. That's great. That's great. Yep. I got nothing to add except that, Kira, I just want you that when you when you respond in any way, shape, or form that is a reflection of your growth, I just want you to celebrate the heck out of yourself, you know, and have your, as Mina was talking about community, like who, who is your fan base that you can say, you guys, you're not going to believe it. I sent this email. I did a little happy dance or whatever. I spoke my truth. I think sometimes we miss on the healing journey, the chance to pat ourselves on the back, to give ourselves a hug, to just, you know, put a hand on the heart to little Kira that, you know, I got you. Like, it's not like it was back then. And to just notice all the ways, Kira, that you are practicing courage and, and clarity in the here and now. Yeah. Mina, it's been so fun to connect with you. Thank you so much for being on the show with me today. Thank you, Alexandra. This was a wonderful conversation. Thank you for having me. So we will put links in the show notes to your book, Owning Your Struggles, which is available wherever books are sold, including Target. There's a beautiful (laughs) picture on Instagram of Mina holding her book in a Target, which is so exciting. So that will be in the show notes. But where else can people get to know you and your work better? Yeah, so you can visit my website, which is MinaB.com, and Mina is spelled M-I-N-A-A-B.com. Um, and when you visit my website, you can sign up for my newsletter, Mindful with Mina, where I share tips and practices on how to build healthy relationships and um, where I will be sharing more information on events that I will be holding in 2024. So stay tuned. Um, and you can also, most importantly, find me on social media. I'm on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Facebook under the name Mina B. Wonderful. Thank you, Mina B. Thank you, Mina B., for joining me here on Reimagining Love. Thank you also to our brave listener who submitted that moving question. To learn more about Mina's new book, Owning Our Struggles, check out the show notes for this episode. Until next time, be well. Reimagining Love is produced by Elizabeth Vogt and edited by Emily Reeves. Our theme music was composed by Slade Warnkin. Do you have a relationship question that you want answered on the show? Visit reimagininglove.com to send a written or audio question. Questions can be about intimate partnerships, family relationships, friendships, you name it. If you're looking for more love and relationship content, you can find me on Instagram at dr.alexandra.solomon or visit my website, dralexandrasolomon.com, where you'll find my blog as well as the Intimate Relationships 101 e-course based off the popular class I teach at Northwestern University. Thank you for listening and see you next week here on Reimagining Love.
There are two things that are absolutely true. Grandma loves you, and she would never say no to McDonald's. So treat yourself to a Grandma McFlurry with your order today. It's what Grandma would want. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At participating McDonald's for a limited time. National Outlet Shopping Day is back. Join us June 8th and 9th at Simon Premium Outlets nationwide. Score thousands of can't-miss deals from brands you love all weekend long. They've got up to 65% off every day. And the National Outlet Shopping Day deals are even better. Visit premiumoutlets.com slash NOSD to find a premium outlet near you. That's premiumoutlets.com slash NOSD. She said, get out the chat room and clean my The Glad Girl Group coming at you with a throwback jam. That was Glad Force Flex Drawstring Trash Bags featuring Pine Sol Original Scent. And that's better than all good. It's all Glad.